I do think there's something in in the body of my work that looks at um, walking in somebody else's shoes and giving that voice to somebody else and whether that's, you know, a character in a documentary film that's a social issues film or, you know, refugees or, or, or people with disabilities or, you know, if it's about, you know, going back to nature, people who don't have voices, how do you find the story in the actions and in the behaviour without necessarily always having the words and how can you create that empathy? Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, experts in influence, people behind the scenes of influence to get to the bottom of what it actually takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, my next guest is documentary filmmaker Karina Holden. Karina is the producer that sat behind some of my favourite shows and films over the last few years, from hard-hitting pieces like Go Back to Where You Came From. I don't know if, if any of you remember seeing that. It was a show that quite literally had the entire of Australia talking and reflecting on how we treat those people we refer to as boat people. Or, probably more importantly, how we would treat them if we had walked even a few metres in their shoes. From there, she went to hilarious shows like Lukewarm Sex, which shone a light on how we approach learning about intimacy. So let's just say she, she doesn't seem to shy away from difficult topics. Karina first came to my attention through a video I saw online promoting um, a piece of work that she had been doing. And in that video, she was talking about masterful storytelling, which is one of my all-time favourite topics. However, she was talking about masterful storytelling from a very unique lens, from the lens of, of enabling, equipping and motivating people to make a change, especially around environmental issues. It's one thing to tell an amazing story. It's another thing to actually get people to change their behavior in the long run. So I had to have her in and I obviously stalked her. She would probably tell you that I stalked her and we managed to get her on the show. And while she was in, when we were doing the interview, I witnessed her watching me, if that makes sense. She talks a lot about the power of observation in this, in this conversation and just the way that she watched the entire interview process unfold. She has this genuinely curious mind and there's a, there's a piercing clarity. It's the best words I can think of to how she views the world. But above all else, she's seriously not afraid to get dirty in order to make a point. Her career as a producer and a director has taken her from following the Maasai tribes in Africa, climbing mountains, heavily pregnant, I don't know how, to tackling the ancient art of spider wrestling in Japan. And don't worry, you'll hear more about that in a minute. However, what I wanted to talk to her about was how you go about creating a piece of storytelling that creates action. And her latest documentary, Blue, is doing exactly that. Having been called a cinematic song for our oceans by Greenpeace, Blue is a powerful look at the danger of industrialization and the threat it poses our oceans and our reliance on plastic and unsustainable fishing practices. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard all of those things a thousand times and I don't really know what they meant. It's, it becomes a slogan that you find on labels of the things that you buy. And so in doing the research for this interview, I actually decided to go hard and find out what some of those things mean. So let me just give you a brief overview before we jump into the interview. Unsustainable fishing practices. When you hear those words, what that means is there are now industrial nets big enough to hold a dozen 747 airplanes. A dozen. 
and trawling vast areas of our ocean, scooping up every living thing. In the words of one of the biologists that's featured in Blue, half of the marine life he has spent his life studying has been lost over the past 40 years. So that's 50% in one lifetime. And by 2050, there is predicted to be more plastic in the oceans than fish. Now, that's not a story that commercial television, by its nature and the role that we have given it, relies on for its ratings and its revenue. It's not a story that it's willing or able to tell. So, Karina and her team had to find a different way to get that story told, a different way to get that information into our hands in the hope that we would create our own movements at an individual, a family or a community level or a business level and that we would stop assuming that someone else will save our oceans and start embracing the responsibility as our own. Now that is what I call influence. In this episode, we dive deep into, dive deep, pardon the pun, into a number of areas. We talk about gaining attention, how to package an idea or a cause to gain the trust and investment, because unfortunately there is a practical side to making change needed to get it off the ground. We talk about gaining perspective, how to relate to anyone from people smugglers to snake charmers and spider wrestlers in a way that allows you to win their trust and for them to embark on a journey with you to make change happen. We talk about wordless storytelling, which I loved because storytelling is so often perceived as having to be all about words. And in many situations, such as our oceans, they can't speak. There are no words. And so how do you create an experience or put words to situations or crises that need a voice? And finally, we talk about invoking action. Once you've found your way into people's minds and hearts through epic storytelling, how do you make sure you stay there? and in a way that results in tangible change. Now, someone had said about Blue, the the film, that watch it and you will want to rise up with the waves. I genuinely hope that you do. And if you do, way to start is that there are screenings of the movie in pretty much every state in Australia, in the USA, in the UK, in Canada, in New Zealand, on June 6th and 7th. Go, pledge your support. Watch this film, share it with everybody you know. It is such a vital piece of storytelling. One final random fact for you. Two-thirds of the creatures on this planet rely on the coral reefs in our oceans for their life cycle. That's two-thirds of all the creatures on this planet. So with that, I think I've made my point. With that, I hope you sit back, enjoy my conversation with Karina Holden. Welcome to the podcast, Karina Holden. Thanks for having me, Julie. You're very welcome. It's funny, we were just talking about before I press record whether doing these kind of interviews was your most favourite or least favourite part of your job, which probably leads me on to my next question. I won't give it away. Whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? So I guess perceptively people would say, oh, she's an extrovert because she's out here doing all these things. And... um, I think that that's just because I have to now, but I feel like I probably am naturally more of an introvert, but given the opportunities that I have, I know that I'm in a privileged situation and and that I can use the opportunities to really stand on my platform now. And so, yeah, why not? Why not be an extrovert? Why not own it a little bit? I love those words. I use those words a lot. Own it. Just Mm. just own it. And 
The reason I ask that question is because I think a lot of people have a story, we all have a story, that if you want to have a voice, especially a voice as loud as yours now, through not only your body as a vehicle, but all your body of work as a vehicle, that you need to be an extrovert to make those choices. And it always fascinates me that how rarely that turns out to be the case, how rarely it turns out that the people that make a big impact consider themselves to be an extrovert. Yeah, I guess I look back now on on what's been happening and every step that I've taken forward and I surprise myself. I really surprise myself. I sort of, I, I think 10 years ago, I felt like I was on the crest of a wave that was about to break and that would be it and I'd be dumped in the sand and, and it would be all over. But that it's a bit of a mega wave. I, I, I do feel like I've got a great propulsion and I've been given opportunities to tell all kinds of stories as a documentary filmmaker. And now I'm apparently, I'm called a film activist which I've decided to embrace, eco-feminist, warrior, film activist. Another favourite word of mine at the moment, warrior. Yeah, I'm going to own it. Do. Again, you own that. I'm owning it. You own that. I was, I was doing my research before, before this interview and I was reading another interview with you and you said in that interview that you had had a great headmaster at school and he was into the idea of the whole person, which the Greeks said was a philosopher, an artist, and a scientist. And again, just talking about the introvert, extrovert thing, giving permission, or you had been given permission to own all of it. Like own the scientist part of your brain, own the artist side of you. You know, now that you're owning the introvert part of you and the extrovert part of you. And was that knowledge fundamental? Was that permission fundamental at the beginning? Yeah, yeah, it was. I think it's interesting the way that we do education in Australia and, and certainly at this time in our world today, the way that everything's compartmentalised and that idea... I remember getting to the end of my HSC and having majored in languages and arts and going, okay, well, I've done that, so why don't I do science? And I applied for a Sydney University science degree and they said, well, you haven't studied enough science. So then I did bridging courses to get into science and did the science. But then when I was in science, I wanted to do archaeology and anthropology and they were art subjects, so you weren't allowed to do those. And it's just amazing the walls we put up around ourselves because... There's so much that our brain wants to move to and make those connections. And I guess in some ways the way that I landed where I am as a communicator of documentary ideas, but you know, basically studying ecology at university and ecology being the study of all life and all things and how they're connected, you know, that sort of says something about, I guess, the way that I think and the way that I've been trying to draw things into the way that I resolve issues and problems. And also you couldn't make the impact that you make. You know, if it was just all about the art, if it was all about the beauty of the images and there wasn't the scientific rigour underneath it, it wouldn't have the impact. Same applies, and we'll talk a lot about that later, where if you just have the science and you just have the stats and none of the artistry of storytelling behind it, you can't make the level of impact either. So you need both of those both of those worlds. Yeah, and you, but you also need to make sure you don't spread yourself so thin that you're a generalist. So, you know, how do you craft yourself so that you can be a Renaissance thinker and still bring expertise? You don't want to be a master of all, do you? Or a jack of all. Well, you, if, if you want to be a master of all, why not? Let's go for that. But um, yeah, you can't be the jack of all trades and expect to kind of have the cut through. So, yeah. Well, you... St- started out from what I can from what I can learn you started out with a fascination for animals and there was this amazing quote someone said we have the next generation of snake wranglers in Karina Holden 
I don't know who it was that said that. But how did that passion for animals and, you know, you had also said that you had a unique talent to make a moth fly from left to right or to get a lizard to come out of its burrow. How did you develop that? What, what brought you a love of being able to work with creatures to get them to do what you were hoping they were going to do so that you could film it, I'm assuming? Mm, I mean, I've just, I've been very privileged this last fortnight. I've just spent um, the last fortnight with a, a wildlife cameraman from the BBC and I have been doing all of those things that I did 20 years ago now um, with crocodiles and flies and moths and caterpillars and birds and everything um, on set every day to um, do wildlife filmmaking um, scenes. And it's, it's just been wonderful going back to it. And it does come down to that, that the process of slowing yourself down and just watching and absorbing and looking at things from another point of view and trying to understand a different point of view than your own and what motivates a creature to move into the shade, you know, what, what's going to motivate it to come out of the dark or things like that. And I, and I guess that my connection with animals was just a, a really strong observational spending time looking and being in nature. And that came from wonderful parents who constantly had us bushwalking and camping and sailing and swimming and really seeing the natural world as not something to be scared of, but something that was this wonderful arena for us to explore who we were as well. And did that, did that inform that talent for observation, the talent for being able to see the, the motivation of, of another creature, another being, did that go on to inform how you worked with humans when it became time for you to make documentaries about humans? Did, that, did those skills translate well? Yeah. Between crocodiles and humans. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and snakes and television executives for sure. But <laughs> I think that, I do think there's something in in the body of my work that looks at um, walking in somebody else's shoes and giving that voice to somebody else. And whether that's, you know, a character in a documentary film that's a social issues film or, you know, refugees or, or, or people with disabilities or, you know, if it's about, you know, going back to nature, people who don't have voices, how do you find the story in the actions and in the behaviour without necessarily always having the words and how can you create that empathy? That's really fascinating when you say when you don't necessarily have the words because I hadn't thought about that, that sometimes you would be working with communities or individuals where you don't speak the language. And so you've somehow got to influence them into creating a story wordlessly. I'm Mm. doing a bad job using words to describe the concept. No, but it's a feeling. It's a feeling and it's an open-heartedness. I think that you go into situations with optimism and sometimes being sceptical as well. But um, if you go in with optimism and you open your heart and you hope for the best and you sit with people or you, you sit in nature and, and you look and it's amazing what happens when you're not always having to force things. I, could, I remember I spent some time in South America. I remember having an experience trying to buy a hot chocolate Mm. and it took about 15 minutes. I didn't speak Spanish. They obviously didn't speak English. And it was the best 15 minutes. I remember coming out of that situation thinking, I have probably connected more with that human being with both of us trying our absolute best to figure out what on earth I wanted Mm. than I would have done with most individuals on most days throughout my daily life as I order a coffee while half looking at my phone, as I run through spaces, barely making eye contact 
there is something beautiful when you don't have words. It forces you into something else. Yeah, I mean, my partner's Moroccan and we don't have words. <laughs> I mean, like literally, we often just don't have words. Uh, he speaks French and Arabic and I speak very bad French. And for the first couple of years that we were together, it was, it was hilarious. I mean, yes, lots of... Um, you, ha- you have to go to get to the core of things then when you don't have words. You know, what's at the heart? What are people's intentions? What's, you know, actually there? Can you speak English now? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make life very interesting. I'm, I'm going to keep going sequentially. I, I don't usually go sequentially, but I think for your particular journey, it's really interesting to see where it built, built up to. You made 16 films... Um, before you even got anything up in Australia and that was throughout throughout Asia. And you said to get those films made, you do everything from washing the socks of the crew, finding food to eat still in the jungle, <laughs> negotiating with the Thai railways to allow monkeys on trains. And this one I, I loved. And in the second trimester of your pregnancy, when I was mainly just eating Ben and Jerry's, you were climbing Mount, um, Mount Kenya with a group of warriors. Yeah. So many... Fascinating, fascinating stories in all of that. But I want to focus on one. And that was a group of spider wrestlers in Japan. Mm. So firstly, how do you find a group of spider wrestlers? And secondly, once you found them, pick up the story as to why you needed to find them and what you were hoping for. Oh, I was making a film for National Geographic Channel, which was basically about orb-weaving spiders in Japan. And there's this ancient culture that goes back 600 years, of um, back to the time of the samurai, where they used to incite bloodlust amongst their uh, samurai troops before war by getting them to battle insects, um, you know, strangely <laughs> enough. And I thought, oh, that's a nice anecdote. I'm always reading um, in between, you know, the lines of stories and starting to imagine, is there something in that? So strangely enough, National Geographic let me do this commission and I went to Japan and hadn't met anyone and I was bright-eyed and optimistic as always that I'd, you know, make this all work. And I had a translator with me, a fixer uh, called Rena, and she came down to Kagoshima in um, an island in the, the south of Japan. And it was very, very, very traditional society. Um, they still sang the national anthem and flew the Japanese flag, which apparently doesn't happen up in um, Honshu so much anymore. And even she was having culture shock. So we went to this spider club and um, started negotiating the filming that we were going to do with them. And they were all these lovely old men in their 80s and and older who were ex-kamikaze pilots. And so they were just a, a really fascinating group, but none of them spoke English. I didn't speak Japanese. Rena was trying to make it all work between us um, one way or the other. And it literally took dozens and dozens of tea ceremonies and being down on my hands and knees, walking around, pouring tea and later sake to get these guys to accept me. But the big problem for them was that I was a woman who was in charge of the crew. I was a director and a producer and I was the one telling the sound recordist and the cameraman what to do and they just couldn't get their heads around that. Why is this woman in charge? What an embarrassment. But the lovely thing by the end of the month that I spend with those characters and we did make a, a lovely film called Samurai Spiders, the end of that film they said to me, well, when you go home, your husband will have left you, but it's okay, you can come back here and one of us will marry you and look after you. So I knew I was always going to be okay then. Living in a house full of spiders. Yeah. I'm not worried about spiders though. Spiders, spiders are not, I hate rats. <laughs> spiders, snakes, sharks, 
Oh, no problem, but not rats. So many questions in that. Firstly, around why you would choose to fight a spider as a test of manhood as opposed to a larger creature. But other than that, how do you begin to win trust? And then once you've won that trust, there's that, there's that trade-off, right, between winning someone's trust, so getting on their level enough to win trust, but then also having authority because you're responsible for a finished product. Yeah, look, I think it's always in the field wherever I am, if, especially if I'm going into a different community, whether it's that example in Japan or Thailand or Kenya or Morocco, wherever, it's just spending time with people and making sure that you carry yourself as one of them. You don't pretend that you're somebody else. You're not in there as a big TV producer with all the shiny equipment. You know, you sit down and you eat with them. So in Thailand, that meant that you sat down and you ate, you know, ants, and rice for lunch with your bare hands and and you did that and that was fine. You just, you show respect. When people feel that you're genuine and that you respect them and that you're open, they want you to tell their story. They want to be part of what, what you're there to do and they're proud. And so many times it surprises me. People are just waiting for the opportunity to tell their story. I mean, you'd, you'd know this too, wouldn't you? It's, nobody sits down for an hour and tells, has a conversation about them and their story. And so what we're doing now, I do with my documentary subjects and I, I spend time with them and suddenly they've got a lens on their life and people walk out of that experience quite transformed because they suddenly, the self-reflection gives them a sense of um, being witnessed, of being appreciated, but it also gives them their own sense of identity as well. I think there's a magic word that you said in that, which was time. To give the time to another human being, to care enough to open up a space and, and say, okay, it's just you and me in this space and I want to know, I want to know it all. Like, so I'm curious, you have my full attention. I want to know what, what created that choice. I want to know how you felt about that choice. I want to know what took you there. And there's this is incredible lady that I spoke to who's an emeritus professor, a lady called Judy Atkinson, and she talked about the art of deep listening and she works in a lot of Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander communities. And she was saying, unless you give somebody the space and the time to allow their stories to be heard, either on an individual level or on a community level, then healing literally Mm. cannot take place. Mm. It can't take place while the stories still exist unheard. Mm. And I think that that's one of the great gifts of, of what you do, especially for the voiceless, when we're talking about wildlife, when we're talking about under the oceans, when we're talking about whatever community of beings we're talking about, you provide the space and the opportunity for the stories to be heard in order to allow a change to happen. Yeah, and look, there's, there's two parts to that. There's there's what you end up producing and it's a, you know, it's a beautiful film or an impactful film or it you know, has a certain measure to it and there's the audience and their experience of that and then there's the process of making it. And they're two different things and it's great to walk out and at the end of the day, I've got this amazing archive of what my life is from the films that I've made because of the, all the lived experiences of making those films and being with those people and spending that time and focused on those issues or their stories. And those people, their process of, of making the film is often quite transformative too. So it's pretty special. How does a story feel to you? I hadn't written this question down, but I'm fascinated. How does a story feel to you when it comes in? Does it come in whole? Does it come in in pieces? You've got to put it together. Does it evolve over time? That's a good question. I guess 
There is, there, I do feel that once I've got my hands on a story, I, I know where it's going to go. I know um, generally the tone it's going to take and how I need to shape it. And then lots of surprises happen along the way. I don't tend to be sort of open-ended the way I go into things. And I think that sometimes, you know, that's now the pressure of the, the type of um, filmmaking. If you're, you know, making films where you're commissioned at the beginning and you have an expectation of the broadcast dates and the budget and, you know, everything's all set, then you, you kind of have to sort of work with quite a bit of shape in place. And there's a lot of um, storytellers writers and filmmakers who don't. They'll just hit the page or pick up the camera and explore. But I, I do sort of come in with sort of a bit of a cloud, knowing where it's going to go, and then it plumps up and grows with emotion from that point. It's funny, I'm just visual, visualising while you're talking what it feels like for me to compare to how it feels for you. Mm. And mine always feels like it's, if I meet somebody with an incredible story or I'm I'm there to bring somebody's story to life for whatever purpose. It always feels like it's kind of, you guys can't see me, I'm literally miming this. It feels like it's just to the right of my, the periphery of my vision, the top mm. right. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, I'll talk to somebody and it starts emerging there and you're like, oh, I can see it. And once I can see it, I know that it's, that it's there, that it's going to happen, that it's, you know, I, we can get there. And there must be another, you know, dimension where all of these things exist because the number of times I've reached up into that, that space to get that story and found that there's somebody else reaching up at exactly the same time. So true. Yeah. So true. And again, working with people who's lots of different stories and lots of different spaces and arenas, I've seen that play out so many times Yeah. where you hear a story and you think, oh, I've never heard anybody put it like that or mention it like that or come up with that before and then suddenly it'll be like it's come down and whoever's going to get there first yeah. gets there. Yeah. And equally when you know a story is done, I find, again, just referencing my own experience, sometimes if I know my involvement with a story is done, I'll just, I'll, you know, look up to check and it won't be there anymore. Yeah. And you're like, okay, that, I can't see that anymore. Yeah. So obviously my involvement with this has moved on now because I can't see it. But it's a, it's a physical sensation being able yeah, to it's see a, it. Yeah, it's a bit of a lightning rod, being a lightning rod for stories to come through you. The hard bit is commissioning editors and people who, you know, buy the work to have the same experience, of course. Well, I mean, that was me. <laughs> so being a, a talent management agency, yeah. it was my job to in some ways say yes or no to an idea as to whether or not it would get our particular platform anyway. Lots yeah. of ideas I said no to went on to be phenomenally successful. So there is a special way of getting your, your stories heard by the right people. And so let's actually, let's just go there for a second because mm. I think that would be really helpful for anybody listening. I've got plenty more questions about storytelling in general. So what did you learn about pitching ideas? Okay, so pitching ideas has got nothing to do with the ideas or the story. It's being in the right time at the right place with the right person that you've already got a relationship with. It is so rare in my industry for the great story to get commissioned and, and have the money behind it. It's You work with momentum consistently and I guess that that's, you know, why I talk about being on a roll kind of, you know, one success hopefully leads to another but not guaranteed. But, you know, I, I, I constantly see this. It's not the great stories or the best ideas that actually get made. It's a, There's a lot of risk aversion when it comes to documentary commissioning and, and television factual commissioning, you know, what people are prepared 
to go out. They want a lot of reassurance that the audience is ready and that this is very well formed. And often it's much easier just to buy something finished or get somebody to make a version of somebody else's format. So originality is really a bit of a, you know, an endangered species in some ways. And also to hear no, to hear no a lot of times. No is fine. I don't mind hearing no. It's just, you know, I don't always agree, of course, so things go into the bottom drawer, but, you know, a fast no is better than a a two or three years of maybe. (laughs) Just rip off the band, I'd say no fast. Yes. Indeed, if it's not going to work now for whatever reasons, because, you know, I do believe that there's always a, there's a, there's a time and a place. So I don't believe that my ideas at least get rejected because the wrong ideas, it's just, it's the, the alchemy is not there in terms of what people are thinking they need for whatever platform. Because at the end of the day, you know, I'm not just making documentaries for myself. This, as lovely as that would be, I'm making films that have to go to an audience. And there's a lot of people who work in those um, broadcast networks who actually know their audience and know or think that they know exactly what they want and so that's what they serve up and so that's what you're dealing with all the time. You're not taking your best idea in, you're taking the in, in the idea that is related to what they think their audience wants. Let's touch on that saying no piece and, and as it relates to trust. I know you had a particular situation where you were looking to make a Discovery Channel documentary on the Maasai culture and you had gone in, you'd done a lot of prep and then you pick up pick up the story from there. Oh, so I can yeah, tell your yeah. whole body language is still still tenses up at just, the story. And I just you know, you when you have difficult things happen, they happen and they feel so bad and then nothing else can ever feel as bad again. So you're all right. So you know, you got it. You've got to see it as a learning experience. But yeah, I was given a commission. It was this strange commission that came off the back of a gin and tonic. It was 10 one hours that we were going off to Kenya to make a series set inside a tribe. And we worked with the Maasai previously. So we'd, I'd literally gone and laid down the first bricks in the first hut and worked out exactly where the village was going to be and, and who we were going to film. And I'd done a full casting under the Boab tree, which was amazing. And I just that in itself was just so just tell us a little bit about that. So what oh. is a casting under a boaba tree? Well, look like? it was we were we we literally you know went in. Uh, I had a Maasai translator with me, and we met a group of warriors. And we said tomorrow morning at eight a.m. we're going to meet under this tree. Anyone who's interested in being part of a Discovery Channel television show that uh, might want to participate will be here in the morning. So we rock up at eight o'clock, and there's over hundred and fifty people there. It was just extraordinary people. the the Maasai network. They had all have mobile phones underneath their shookers and they all came out of the bush and some of them had walked for 10 hours overnight all through in the darkness with their spears and we arrived and there was just this massive party going on and it was just the best day of my whole life. And via the translator, we went through and we interviewed every single person that day and we met people, you know, who were blind and had had their arms bit off by lions and had, you know, little children who had fought leopards with their bare hands and women who had, you know, were onto their fourth husband and had hilarious tales. And it was just a day of absolute riotous fun. I could not stop laughing. It was just brilliant. 
So I was just convinced this was going to be the best series ever because, you know, 10 episodes set in amongst this group of people who were going to be part of the series was going to be better than any Married at First Sight or Big Brother that you could imagine. And so it was all on and we were in our pre-production and I was on my plane on the way to Kenya when I landed at Dubai. I was told to down tools because they'd had a change of heads at Discovery Channel and the woman in charge had decided to cancel the series. And you had, you had rented out your apartment, you had sold your car. I mean, you were committed. A year in Kenya and I was halfway there with all my gear and, yeah, then that happened. So... And how do you deal with the trust aspect of that? Because there's a disappointment, obviously, and when, when you're trying to get any idea out there, when you're trying to tell any story, when you're trying to create any change, there's going to be some cataclysmic no's. And it's one thing hearing the no or hearing the disappointment yourself and having that moment of just wanting to curl up in a ball and eat cornflakes for the rest of your life. And then there's that other moment where you suddenly think, oh my God, I have to tell everybody who I've brought on this journey with me. I have to tell everybody who trusted me Mm. that this isn't going to happen. How do you navigate that? Well, you know, uh, we were absolutely, you know, worried uh, for our lives. Because they have spears. (laughs) Yeah, so we managed to get some cancellation funds out of Discovery Channel and that was our, our peacemaking that we went down and we set up a foundation and money went into the local school because they were expecting for money to flow into the community and all kinds of things. And so at the end of the day, they were gracious, but yes, uh, we were really worried that it was gonna be a situation where we're gonna have spears put through us. And I think that it, I mean, it taught me a lot because it's one thing for me to be disappointed, but to have all those people around me disappointed. And every now and then I, I start to feel confident. I think I've been doing this for 20 years. I know what I'm doing. I can read where this is going. And then I have a cancellation again of something and suddenly I've got to turn around to all my crew and my cast and say, for whatever reason, this is not going to move ahead. So you have to do your best to manage people's expectations to get them excited, but also, you know, not overpromise in knowing that um, the entertainment industry is incredibly fickle and even the best people in the world have their shows just pulled on them. You know, nothing's finished until it's actually, you know, on tape in the edit. I've seen shows cancelled in the edit. Uh, so you always have to be really tentative while at the same time being encouraging. Being really tentative while at the same time being 100% committed. Yeah. Which is a difficult balance yeah. in and of itself. Under your leadership, you know, there a huge amount, I mean, we've just heard some of those stories and a huge amount of documentaries have been made. One that I wanted to focus on was go back to where you came from. And for anybody that's never seen or heard of Go Back to Where You Came From, it, it, it obviously made a, a rather large media splash when it, when it was first launched. Can you just walk us through the concept? What was the idea behind it? Oh, look, it's going back to, I was, it was my first job back. Uh, actually, I think I went through a pregnancy with it, but I think it was, I remember being back in the office with a six week old baby in my arms, trying to work through our first meetings. Uh, There was a tender put out by SBS uh, to do something on migration. And so it was 
I mean, it was 18 months of work to get to the point where it was commissioned. And so we went through a lot of concepts. I was working with my co-producer, Tim Tony, and the concept started to evolve and it was very much, you know, a, a, it was before there was a lot of, um, what did they call them, the, these formats that, you know, the fish out of water, but the living history kind of strands where you take people and you put them into a situation where they um, have to experience other people's. And Australia hadn't done too many of those, but we were looking at what was happening in some of the overseas documentary markets and sort of said, well, maybe this is an interesting way to approach migration. And then it became specific to refugees because we originally we're going to be looking at um, migration throughout the ages in Australia but then the the refugee thing was just you know it was it, it was so such a political hot potato continues to be but particularly at that time it was all child overboard stuff going on and so this was just a way to say we've had documentary in this country do a really good job at reportage and we've seen personal storytelling of individuals but this was kind of one of the very first sort of experimental genres where we flipped it on its head and we thought of the idea of actually taking people who were potentially anti-immigration and refugees and putting them through that to see as a social experiment what might end up happening. So when you say putting them through that, putting them through what exactly? Getting them to walk in the shoes of refugees, actually doing the journey. And at one point it started as they would be leaving Africa and, and taking the journey. And then we worked with a very clever executive at SBS who just said, let's start in Australia and go back. And he was the one who came up with the go back concept in the format. And so then, um, because I'd worked in Africa a lot and had people in the United Nations who were willing to help us, we got access to the Kakuma um, refugee camp and started getting some really interesting access that was going to take us right to that ground level and so that's kind of where it evolved. And so literally taking people who were anti-migration in their, in their thinking and putting them into refugee camps and putting them into situations that the people who their beliefs were centred around had come from to literally walk in their shoes. What did you learn in that process about the art and the science of changing minds? Did any minds get changed at all? Let's start there. Well, look, I, I think they're up to season four now of Go Back. It's being made by Cordell Jigsaw. I'm not involved in the production of it. I was involved in, in the development and, and getting it through to that point. And I think it had a massive impact when it first came out and it's done some really interesting things. But I guess for me, because I had spent so much time barefoot walking with people who were different to me, that's what I wanted to deliver in that series. Because when you take the time with those people, your eyes open, you do see things differently. You know, I'd, I'd spent time in Jordan with um, Syrian refugees, you know, years ago and, and just hearing their stories. I just thought if people have the time, giving the time to hear these stories and experience them, then maybe the cracks of light will start to happen in their thinking. And, you know, changing minds is really difficult. We all have mindset and persuasion is, is very difficult. Often you need to be influenced by people who are like you. You can't be influenced by people who are different to you. And so I haven't always been a filmmaker who's 
been a hard-hitting, didactic, I'm going to tell it like this. I try to be gentle to everyone and make it inclusive so that, you know, all people feel like they're part of the journey and they're not being preached to or, you know, that they find the common humanity in what they're seeing or experiencing. And then hopefully if we have those glimpses of being able to relate to people no matter what what we're talking about here, but just that ability to sort of recognise and relate, then maybe that's where the persuasion comes. What I think was genius about that show was it was the use of the third-person vehicle. Like I said, people's minds are changed often by people who are like them. So just showing the situation of the refugees in the camps, just showing their journeys, just showing the path that they were having to tread wasn't enough. It isn't enough to just show, but showing somebody who's just like me experiencing that firsthand and watching how their mind is potentially changed, that's impactful. It's like the power of that third, that third person vehicle. Mm. Is entertainment the way, I say entertainment, I, I mean the media, the way to do that at scale? Is it the best vehicle to do that at well, scale? Well, at scale, it certainly can and it's, you know, not that not that uh, our screens are full of it, but when it works, it definitely works. It's not the only way. I think that, you know, I'm you know, going to advocate that there is all kinds of way, you know, it's it's part of... I mean, having made a, a film recently, made, made this film Blue, what I've really enjoyed about that process is I've made a film and people watch it and experience it, but then very often the experience of watching that film is that we convene a conversation around it. And there's also something really wonderfully intimate about that because I think you can sit in front of your television and you can watch something and and feel changed by it and maybe sometimes that's enough. But the process of actually then, almost like a book club, but with a film, sit and be with the people around you and start to process it and talk and, and people st- sometimes stand up and they just want to make statements or sometimes they have questions they want to ask a panel and sometimes we have panels of different types of people who can give them, uh, you know, different answers to questions. So, you know, I, I, I love the the experience of being collective and coming together and putting ideas into a room and then there's also something nice and intimate that you can get through television and radio where it's just your singular experience. But doing it this way has been interesting, getting a bit of both. Well, let's talk about Blue. Let's, let's jump because Blue is where I first, I first came across your name. I'm going to kick off with some just some facts because I think it helps set a tone as to why Blue is important and also what I'm sure was part of kicking off your passion for the topic. So in this year alone... 50 million plastic bags will enter the litter stream from Australia, making our country the second largest waste producer per person in the world. Two thirds of all creatures on the planet have their life cycle in a coral reef, which are rapidly disappearing. So that's two thirds of all creatures rely on the coral reef on the planet, which is mind blowing. Industrial nets big enough to hold a dozen 747 airplanes trawl the oceans, picking up pretty much every living creature in their path. And by 2050, there will be more plastic than fish in the sea. And there was a lot of other stats there that were equally as grave. So that's obviously the problem. Tell me where the idea... Did 
the idea for blue come from the problem or did the enormity of the problem come after the idea for blue? So I guess making wildlife films for about 20 years, you know, I was obviously aware of all of these issues of extinction and endangerment and ecological degradation. Nobody really wants those in their 7.30 on a Sunday night, sitting down with your TV dinner. Um, They were always the bits of the documentaries that were being cut out. So we'd done a series called Life on the Reef for the ABC. and, and look, numerous other documentaries as well, where the word conservation was always the thing that was sort of being wound back on it. You know, you the C word, don't use the C word in this film, please. Um, why is that? Well, why? Well, look, I think there, there's something um, wonderful and I love those shows and I make them sometimes too, where you just want to escape the Garden of Eden, nature as it should be. There's no humans there. Well, the reality is there's humans everywhere, even in those in the backgrounds of those lion kills and in the jungles of the Amazon where we're watching, you know, monkeys swinging through. It's just out of frame. And the impact of those things is being deleted from any of those wildlife documentaries because we want to feel good and we want to have these family experiences with our kids and, and have this great relationship with nature where we feel like the cities are tough and hard and life is stressful, but at least there's this place out here. But if you start telling people that place out there is also going down the toilet, then, you know, that's that's a pretty depressing thing to deal with. So trying to get people to deal with things that are difficult and hard and depressing is not entertainment, is it? Or, you know, if it is going to be entertainment, how do you do it in a way that's gentle and inviting and delivers something that entertains maybe not in a delightful way, but entertains in a way that your mind is thinking, well, you know, what else can I do? You know, well, how can I be part of this solution? Or is it really that bad? And, you know, I don't know, is entertainment always just about having fun? Um, Maybe it should be, but... Mm. You were saying that the for years you'd made shows that the world wanted to see about nature. Mm. And, you know, you hadn't made a film yet that challenged what broadcasters and audiences were demanding, which, as you're saying, is that escapism. You know, we mm. don't sit down after dinner, after a, a rough day to see something that is going to knock us about the head. You know, we, we're looking for escapism. The rise of reality TV is, is a testament to that. You know, we're looking to disappear down another rabbit hole that has nothing to do with us or, or anything that might be needed from us. So if that is what television has become, then you had to turn to another, another medium to make, this, to make this film. And so was that, was that primarily your choice to make a film? Yeah, so um, based on, I guess, that frustration and knowing that that opportunity was there and really feeling like there was a story that I had to tell, I was given the chance to make this film Blue via Good Pitch Australia. And that was a, a wonderful moment in time where philanthropists came together and were able to put money into films they thought were important to be made. And TV doesn't always make things that are important and films don't always make things that were important. But, you know, there was a very broad group of philanthropists gathered through Good Pitch Australia and the Documentary Australia Foundation who identified a couple of films that were all in different genres and some of them were about diversity and and gender issues and um, the environment and 
Blue was in 2015, we pitched at the Opera House uh, to a crowd of 400 people and that's how we actually got the funding to make the film. So Good Pitch Australia, for anybody that doesn't know, it's a group that brings together filmmakers, please correct me, filmmakers and philanthropists and foundations and entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs who are looking to fund something that they feel is a message worthwhile, a story worth telling. Absolutely. With no editorial um, muscle either, which was wonderful. So it was true independence. It was actually the most extraordinary thing. And I just, I still pinch myself knowing that we were given trust and it was, um, you know, I stood on stage with my good friend, Sarah Beard, who was my producer on the show. We'd known each other for 20 years. The fact that we were solid friends and that we had each other's back and that we were both also actively grassroots in this area. Sarah works for Take Three and both of us go and clean beaches on the weekend. It's not just sort of um, kind of coming in as a journalist. It was very much already being, you know, associated with the cause almost as an activist. I think it's going to be something to watch. This form of crowd, let's call it crowdfunded. It's a small crowd, 400 people, but crowdfunded content going out there. I was, I was talking to somebody who's very prominent in the media recently for the podcast. And he was saying that this is the way that he sees the media going. That if we want to see, if, if you wanted to make a movie that you did, Blue, or if you wanted to write an article about a particular topic or as an investigative journalist, you wanted to go deep into an area and figure out what had happened, you would go to crowdfunding platforms and say, who wants to back me if you want to know more about this? Mm. Can you see it? going that way because that I wouldn't like that idea I know I was just it stuck with me and we talked about a lot of really interesting things but that one stuck with me because mm. I can feel my levels of frustration getting higher and higher with the content that is available to me who paid for it the bias whether I see it at all which is dictated by an algorithm yeah. written by somebody that I don't know you know, I can feel my level of frustration rising with the information that I have available to me, which informs the choices that I make as a, as a human being and essentially how I use my own influence as a person. And it was the first idea I had heard mm. that came anywhere close to solving the problem. Mm. And I mean, that's, that's an exciting idea. And the challenge with it is you don't want to always just be preaching to the converted. And I think that that was the concern when I'm making a film that has a strong environmental message in it, am I just making this for people who are members of Greenpeace? And so I wanted to make it in a way that it didn't have, you know, that sense of that brand. It didn't, it could be something for everyone. It's, I, I kind of touched on it before. Everybody needs to see themselves in this. This is not a film for vegans. This is about our planet. This is where we all live. So we all need to get on board. And so you drummed up $1.1 million in that pitch to make it. And again, what I loved about your story is you used from, again, correct me, you used the majority of that money, which just gives me goosebumps. The majority of that money didn't go on making the documentary. The majority of that money went on to setting up the action platform. And you've spoken a lot about this, which is action-based communication, which is a huge bugbear of mine that I see especially in the documentary world. I see documentaries with incredible messages, important stories. And then you sit there at the edge of your seat an hour later going, okay, I'm in, just give me something to do and I will do it. And then the credits roll and there is nothing. And you know how much passion went into that movie. And so you spent all of the money you raised making sure that there was an action platform 
to back up this film. Can you tell me a little bit more about what is um, Ocean's Guardian, how it works? So uh, Sarah Beard, who became the impact producer on the, the project, she continues to work today. She's actually in Fiji at the moment where she's doing a South Seas Leaders Conference and she's using Blue to take it to the communities. The um, Prime Minister of Fiji is at a screening next week and all of the leaders um, of the South Pacific are, are coming along. And I mean, that's part of what we're doing. We're taking the film to communities and to politics. I've been in federal parliament a month ago about their marine parks uh, decision and being down there with people who appear in the film. So Valerie Taylor, 82 years old, Order of Australia, amazing woman. She came down along with um, two of the other people who appear in the film and having one-on-one meetings with politicians. We've been in Parliament House in the state of New South Wales and in Tasmania and we were going to be in Victoria and we went to the United Nations. So being able to do that's great, but it's about the individuals. And so part of what we created was making sure that we were constantly feeding in to the conversation and having resources. So they're incredibly numerous, but essentially our website, we've got downloadable resources. We ask people to become Ocean Guardians. They get a monthly newsletter. We communicate consistently with a whole lot of ideas on you know, ways to live in sustainable harmony with the ocean and green tips or blue tips as we like to call them. So there's constant sort of ideas that are fueling back into that community. So we've got active community engagement and continue to have since the film was launched last year. And we're just about to go out globally and we've got a World Oceans Day screening um, happening the week of June 8th, where we're going to have 500 cinemas around the world play the film. And we'll start in New Zealand and we'll finish in Hawaii. And somebody's talked about me doing Facebook Live for 24 hours and I'm just like, as long as there's coffee. <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's, let's yeah. look at that. So you just mentioned Facebook Live. So mm. again, I think one of the most vital things about what you did when you, when you launched Ocean's Guardians is, I think it was five, between five and eight core commitments so if, you, if you've heard the message of this film, has it made an impact on you? If you believe that this is something that you want to do something about, here are five to eight, I can't remember the exact number, core commitments you can make right now about the decisions that you make tomorrow. And I think that that's what we need. As busy communities, that's what we need. We, we just need, give me something simple and I will do it. Something simple that I can do as part of my everyday Simplest life. Simplest things. Stop using single-use plastics which are your throwaway disposable coffee cups, your plastic bags that you get when you get your groceries, your straws. That's a great place to start. Second, unsustainable fish. You know, make sure that if you're going to eat seafood, eat something that you know has been sustainably sourced. Vote for politicians who prioritise nature of whatever political party that is. This is not about politics in, in, you know, partisan. It's about actually making sure that you're asking your politicians to put nature in the equation and, you know, respecting, well, we say respect your mother, which, which is the always mother, good advice. The mother, being a mother myself, I, I say it often to my son, respect your mother. Um, but, you know, we, we took that quote from Valerie Taylor who says, the ocean is the mother of all life on this planet. And so respect your mother. Another one is watch where you invest your money. And I think that's a huge mm. question. Australia mm. with forced savings, superannuation, where most of us, myself included until recently, have never asked the question, what is my money invested in? Yeah. And 
do I want to invest my money in the continued survival of those companies or those practices? So it's the large, single largest amount of money that we will ever, single largest voting card that we will ever have as to what we want to see continue. So look exactly. at where your money's invested and then choose to reinvest it into another fund or another superannuation company. And there are some out there. Again, I've just been through the process myself, so I know that there are some out there. So let's go back to Facebook Live because I wanted to touch on that because I think that we're in a day and age now where, you know, for the first time in history, you can create a movement and it, in crazy short periods of time, if you're lucky or unlucky, depending on the movement, it can go viral and you can reach millions of people across the globe because of the the internet, digital world. Yeah. You can do a Facebook Live and untold people can tune in and watch you wherever you might be. How has that impacted your... Because you started out making movies and if you were lucky, you got some bums on some seats, I'm sure. Yeah. But how has that impacted how you tell stories now? Well, I guess it's... Um, Blue is very unique from that point of view in that it, it was an impact campaign. It was a campaign film. There was that time, I mean, at the end of the day, we, we shot the whole film in 35 shoot days over a period of time. But I've been on this journey since 2015 and it doesn't, it's certainly not slowing, not if they want me to do 24-hour streams. So, you know, it's that thing of if you're going to pick up the mantle on something that's a campaign film, you've got to be ready to run for it and, and make sure that you've got the stamina to stay with it for such a long period of time because it can. We've just seen all kinds of crazy things happen where, you know, people just pick it up and start to work with it. And I mean, we're in schools around Australia, 7,000 schools around Australia now, but we just, like, I get students right and everyone wants me in their classroom. And I try, I did six interviews this morning with students. So I try to make myself available, but you've got to have a lot of stamina because you know, once things are outside of that broadcast space and you're in that social arena, you belong to people and you don't know what they're going to do with you, where they're going to take you. So you've got to get ready for that. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about becoming an unintentional ambassador in a second, but does it change the way that you create? Whereas before you were looking at creating a whole entity, be that, you know, mm. a documentary. Now are you asking yourself questions like, in my mind, it would be questions such as, will this make a good soundbite for a 30-second Facebook piece? Will this go viral? Is this a message that can potentially go viral? Oh, I should be more clever like that. I, I mean, we did set out with the intention that we would make a series of short films alongside the feature. So we have 20 films that are all under three minutes and they're for educational purposes. And so we, I literally did, because in the film itself, we're walking next to our characters the whole time and we're on their journey, but we never have any interviews at all. There's no sit down to camera interviews. So I did all of those in the field, but I saved them as my short form content. So I was designing additional vignettes and things as we went through. But that kind of thing where you, you know, where you, I still don't have Facebook myself. <laughs> and they want you to do a 24 hour stream? Me, yeah. So, I mean, look, our, you know, our, our Blue has a web, a Facebook page. You can all look it up if you like Blue the Film or our website and social media, but I'm not a social media person. So I've got to start thinking that way, but it doesn't come naturally to me because I do find it sort of eats you up. Especially if you're a long, if you think long form, mm. if you've wired yeah. your brain to think long yeah. form. I, I know for myself, I am long form. And so thinking short form is challenging. What's your favourite story that's come out of an action-based story that's come out of Blue? 
I know you were talking to some students this morning, where someone's taken the idea and done it their own way. Oh, look, there's lots of stories because I think the, the thing that's been a joy with the film is it's almost like going back to the old um, Albie Mangles travelling around the RSL clubs of Australia in some ways. I mean, we had a theatrical release in cinemas and that was fabulous and we still play in cinemas, not, not necessarily RSL clubs, bless them, but um, just going into communities around the place. And I remember last, I think it was November last year, I was down in Naruma or down near there and we'd asked some local elders to come and do a welcome to country that whole screening was just a major community shift. There were people in that community who had never embraced the Aboriginal community and their environmental ideas. And, and, and ultimately that's where I have a great passion for um, Indigenous Australians as environmentalists and what they're able to tell us and share with us. And it, it turned into a bit of a beef in some ways. There was a bit of a sort of things flying around the room for a while, but once everybody had had, had their voice heard, there was this great sense that this community had healed and come together all on the back of screening the film and that they were going to create a beach action clean-up the next Saturday, that the snorkelling club was going to make sure all the kids in the schools ended up with snorkels and masks and were going to come down and join in on their monthly snorkel out along the pier. There was uh, community groups who were doing climate change actions who were going to sit down with the Indigenous people and come up with a strategy for approaching local parliament. And it was just amazing. And I guess that that's what I'm have been able to experience how different communities potentially not just watch the film but use it as a convening tool to come together and to talk to each other. I'm going to take you back to filming of Blue. Mm. Jumping, jumping all over the place a little bit today but everything you say goes down, a, goes down another rabbit hole for me. You've spoken about the importance of being a master storyteller and it was me hearing you say this in an interview that made me reach out to you to arrange this interview because I very much believe in the need for that, to be a master storyteller if you want to create a change on anything. So what, what have you learned about being a master storyteller through the, through the filming of Blue, through the creating of Blue? Well, I think, I, first of all, I, I, I have to take a, like a humble gulp and say, mm, I don't know if I call myself a master storyteller. Or you could own it. I'll, I could or own you could it. own it in I this could <laughs> I could try to own that. And look, I, I guess, you know, you have this content and this vision and first of all, you have to trust the process. Nothing happens on the spot and you've gone out there with an intention and not everything has worked out your way, but you've gathered your material. You, you have, you know, the elements that are there and if you've gone in and you've spent your time, you know, ruminating over how best to tell this and, and you've actually paid attention then you will be able to form what you need to, but you need to give it the, the time to come together and you need to trust that process that it's all going to come together. I think the other thing is that with the... Uh, there's a, a lot of people who feel very strongly about what they want to say in their messaging and often, you know, when you, you're saying something that's so dark and desperate and, and, and hard that it's hard not to um, come across as quite didactic. And yet I think that that's when you can shut people down. And so encouraging people to see themselves in the story is, is really important and being gentle. And sometimes I feel that this 
would have been a completely different film if a male had made this movie, if it was, you know, told from a different perspective. I, I feel like as a, a female coming in, a lot of people have said to me, I can tell this is, a woman has made this film because they've, there's no ego in it. There's space for everybody to be inside it and even though it's difficult, it's still gentle. I felt embraced by what I was watching when it was hard or sad or you know, quite dark, I still felt safe. And I think that that's where I just tried to keep my hand gently on people's shoulders throughout the film as it slowly, and I I think that's the power also of film and you couldn't do it so much with television, but you have a captive audience inside a, a cinema, it's dark, you're all breathing together. It's a bit like going for a dive for an hour where you all go underwater and you're all breathing and try not to suck up each other's oxygen. And then at the end of the film, you do emerge back into the light, but just making sure that there's a gentle hand on people's shoulders where they feel safe despite seeing some grim realities or some really hard truths that they're learning, that they don't feel abandoned and they don't lose the will. What was your favourite moment in filming during the filming process? Well, I mean, like, I have to confess, you know, it's, you make these films and everyone's like, oh, God, you know, how did you do that? It's so sad. It's so, you know, didn't you want to slash your wrists and, you know, seeing all those things? You know, the truth is when you're actively engaged in something, you're not overwhelmed by, you know, the the abysmal nature of something. If you're out there and you're working towards the action of communicating, creating change around something, and I guess that this is, you know, what people who work in war zones or in, you know, refugee centres might feel, you know, they're actively doing something and through that you don't lose your hope or your stamina. And so, you know, there was a lot of joy on the set. I was with people who I was inspired by. I got to go diving with Valerie Taylor at 82 years old. I mean, we dived in the water and the Great Bayer Reef had bleached the shit out of itself. And it was, that was terrifying. But you, like everything in life, you have to, you know, move to where there's the positive. And also the inclusion piece, which is exactly what you're talking about, you know, you had Valerie, you've got a number of different characters in blue where everybody can see themselves yeah. as part of this story, which is part of the gentleness of it. The, you have said before that you, you believe that you need to be a master storyteller if you want to make an impact on climate change or environmental issues in general. And it got me thinking about Al Gore. I spent a lot of my time thinking about Al Gore, but... And how up until an inconvenient truth, you know, the scientific community have been trying really hard through stats and figures and research to get our attention on something and by their own admission had failed pretty badly at that. And then Al Gore came in with an inconvenient truth. Now, however you, whether you enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it, the power of that story, the power of a beautifully told story or a beautifully produced story, I think it one of the stats that I found is that wherever it was shown, the purchase of voluntary carbon offsets in those areas went up by 50%. Mm. So they're taking the information that was already there and turning it into a passionate story that included everybody. Mm. This is what your homes will look like. This is the type of world your children are going to live in. Mm. That masterful storytelling almost, well, I don't know if it turned the tide, but it certainly started, started a wave. And do you think that's what's necessary, that it takes that kind of level of production and passion 
to bring something to light? Maybe and and maybe not. I mean, I think we have to address this this particular challenge that we're facing from many different ways. And I think sometimes a child's point of view is interesting and is something that's not produced as a big glossy Hollywood. I mean, that's always problematic. You start looking at the carbon offset of a Hollywood production <laughs> and all the flying around in helicopters and everything that happens and you sort of go, mm, carbon offset, mm. Uh, Leonardo leaning out of a, a helicopter looking down on the flooded plains of Bangladesh saying, oh, the carbon crisis here. That's difficult as well. But I mean, so I think you need different types of storytelling across the board. I think you need different things to activate different people. But all human storytelling. Well, I think that's the most effective. I don't think we're robots. I think that there is also a very easy fatigue that sets in and I mean look Inconvenient Truth came out at the the exact week that Blue was slated to come out in Australia and we had to move it because the cinemas said you can't have two environmental films come out in the same year we were going to have to wait till this year to release the film even though it had been completed six months earlier but um, we managed to get an October release and that was considered enough oxygen but uh, you know, people say there's just not enough appetite for it. It's too much. You know, one environmental big theatrical film a year is probably all, you know, the planet can deal with, <laughs> or at least the humanity of the planet can deal with. And how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the, I can't think of a better word, how do you, how do you deal with the apathy? I just think it's part of the creative process, therefore. You have to think it's not just, oh, I need to tell this story this way. It's like, okay, well, for example, I knew that we couldn't make a film that was about politicians and corporations if I wanted to talk about tackling the issues with the ocean. I didn't want another white man walking around who was politically influential attacking corporate practices. We had to find a different way in. or And if it's not a different way in, then it's a different format. So... You know, is it a web series or is it a half-hour documentary format or is it a reality television show or is it a, an hour-long theatrical film? But it's just told in a completely different way than what we've seen. And hopefully that's where you start to get uptake with different audiences. You had also said, I'm just looking at my notes, I believe humanity will innovate and adapt to find solutions. And... Uh, that's a question that I'm really curious about. What what are the solutions right now? Are there are there innovations happening out there, such mm. as different forms of plastic that can degrade very quickly? And I'm sure there's plenty more that haven't entered into my consciousness. What are they and how can your average human being on the planet with a limited attention span support them? So I think for... You know, us as individuals who are not necessarily the technical people out there doing the scientific work, that we can make changes, just our own behaviour changes, to look at our conscious con consumerism and what we're wasting and choosing not to use single-use plastics and thinking about our carbon footprint and just being a little bit more gentle and kind to the planet we live on and not drawing as much on resources. In terms of the technical evolution that we're seeing in society today. I do see things happening around us 
that are giving me a lot of hope. Even in the last two or three weeks, there's been some amazing um, advances in technology around uh, plastics that they believe can truly biodegrade. So we just need to make them affordable because virgin plastic at the moment is so cheap that it's what's going to keep on going into plastic bags and, you know, all those Chinese goods that we buy from the $2 shop that are just great little bits of entertainment for one week of the year or whatever. And so materials will change and they will, we will get there, but there's a hell of a lot of plastic that's still in our marketplace today that we need to try to avoid. I think I, I heard you say that the, the average lifespan of a plastic bag is 10 minutes, but every piece of plastic that's ever been created since the beginning of time still exists on the planet somewhere. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's only 100 years worth of plastic, but it's all still here and it will be here for, you know, outlive my great, 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 great grandchildren. So what's the one thing that you would love? I usually ask this question. If I could give everybody, you know, give you anybody you would ever want to influence, and I could give you a stage and I could give you a microphone and I could somehow be that omnipotent. What's the one thing you would want them to know? or I can make it specific, what's the one thing you would want them to know about how to use storytelling to make a change in something they're passionate about? I mean, I'm just one person and the people who I have filmed with and told their stories, they're just one person. And I see influence grow from that. And so I just want people to feel powerful. I, I want people to feel that the way to move forward is to think of our collective, but know as an individual that you can influence that collective. And so, not that I want everybody to be dropping comments on Instagram all of the time, to, and that, that's not exactly using your voice. Using your voice is actually, you know, what you talk about at dinner parties and being able to, if you're an expert in something, going in and inspiring kids in a school classroom or, um, you know, just taking those platforms. I mean, like, I, I'm not asking to put myself forward, but if somebody says, you know, will you be on a panel? I think, well, I believe in things that if somebody wants me to, to, to take five, ten minutes, then I'm going to take that five to ten minutes to, to try to express some of the things that I think are important. And I believe in the goodness of people. I believe in the importance of looking after one another. I believe that, you know, we need the planet, but the planet doesn't need us. And so we need to start prioritising nature. So that will always be a really critical part of any of my documentary storytellings. I'll, I'll always want to turn back to wildlife and make sure that that features in my storytelling, even if I divert off and tell stories of humanity, because those things always, it will always come back to that. It will always come back to the importance of trying to tread carefully and look after each other and look after the things that we've been given the guardianship of. And remember all the, all the tools we have at our disposal now. Yeah. There's so many more tools. You know, when you first started out telling stories to the tools that we have now and the channels that we have now. So if you have something that you're passionate about and you want to get it out there, a 30-second video on your iPhone with enough passion and authenticity put up on the right channels, it can make an impact on at least one person, if not many, many more. You, you had used a word before called, and I'm, I'm going to pronounce it probably incorrectly, Motenai? Motenai? Motenai. Motenai, which is a Japanese word. Can you tell me what it means? Motenai is a concept um, that comes from Japan and it is about 
understanding that whatever we're using in the world has has come from somewhere and needs somewhere to go. And so it's about respect in that we need to, if we've got a fish on our plate, we need to show respect to the fisherman who went out to sea and to the person who bought that fish in the truck and to the fish that gave its life and then to the bones that have to go off into the bin to be removed and and so on and so forth. But that this idea of this circle, that things come to you and that there should be a reverence around them and therefore we should not waste. If something comes to us, we can't just discard it with this lack of understanding or this lack of respect, essentially. And I guess that that kind of crystallises a lot of, you know, what I was trying to communicate in blue, you know, this this idea that the ocean itself, we've kind of taken it for granted, you know, we just see that it's so big and endless. And yet, if we have this idea that, you know, nothing is endless, it, we live on a finite planet, and the resources are finite. And so, Motanyai, you know, respect what comes to you, respect that it has somewhere to go, respect that you should not just be wasteful in your life. I love that. I love that. Well, in terms of respecting what it took for something to get from where it is to where it is now, a full, my full respect to what it took you to get from the beginnings to where you are now and producing work that's as incredible and impactful as Blue. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. Thanks, as always, to our producer and the main brain behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an interview.